So this is by no means uh, an, easy, an easy text. It has some, oh, children, please be dismissed, obviously, because I just forgot that again, even though I wrote it right in front of my nose. So yes, um, thank you, children. So as I was saying, 1 Corinthians 5 is by no means an easy uh, text. It handles something hard. It handles church discipline. Um, but just, just a little bit of a, a review of what goes on and what's going on in 1 Corinthians, that Paul is basically writing this letter to uh, a church, to the Corinthian church. And just like how they were then, we are also now. They were sinners back then, and we are also sinners now. So Paul is first and foremost writing to sinners and how they should be living their life within the local body. So in the first four chapters, we found Paul contrasting Christ and in the world. We found that the Greeks prized their worldly philosophy, their persuasive and eloquent words, but Paul made the point that Christ was to be prized above all of those. We saw Paul also argue against divisions in the church, that some were aligning um, themselves with either Paul or they were aligning with Apollos, and both Paul was saying that's not to be happening. They were allowing the world uh, to come into the church and basically cause strife among the church. But for Paul, he, he writes this entire letter not to shame them, but to warn them as beloved children. He cares and loves for the Corinthians. So it's out of that care and that love that I want to bring this word uh, to you this morning. So in light of that, Hopefully you're all at 1 Corinthians 4.21. This is what it says. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? It is actually reported there is sexually, sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present for the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you are really as you really are unleavened for Christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven the leaven of malice and evil but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth i wrote to you in my letter not to dissociate not to associate with sexually immoral people not all not at all meaning the sexual immoral the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging others? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, I pray and would ask that if there are any words that come out of my mouth that are not according to your word, Father, they would fall flat upon these hearts. But Lord, that if they are true, that Lord, you would spring forth good fruit within, within us, Lord. Lord, I ask that you would bless this time in front of us, Lord, that you would give us clear understanding of what your word means to say. For this all in your name. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 4.21. 
What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So you guys may remember that uh, there aren't actually any chapter breaks or paragraph breaks or even verses in the original Greek of the New Testament. So therefore, one chapter can very smoothly just flow into the next chapter. So I think verse 21 here is actually a pretty good example of that. So this asks us, shall Paul come to them with a rod or in love with the spirit of gentleness? And I think just our natural tendency is to say, well, of course, in love with the spirit of gentleness. Of course we want that. But I think what Paul is gearing up here to do is he's trying to take off the glove, so to speak, for chapter 5. So I think a helpful way to look at this is actually back in verse 14 of chapter 4, just seven, seven verses before this one. See, Paul calls them beloved children. So now even, so it, this phrase, uh, this is, have you heard of the phrase of, of spare the rod or spoil the child? That's basically just a modern day proverb that stems from Proverbs 13. So that whoever spares the rod hates their children, but whoever loves their children actually disciplines them. So this also emulates the father that we see in Hebrews. In Hebrews, he tells us that the father disciplines those whom he loves. So clearly Paul is having this idea and this mentality in mind that as I have love and concern that he is about to bring the rod and discipline on them in 1 Corinthians 5. But how should we see this in our American church today? If this was the church back then in the first century, how can this then apply to our American church today? Well, first off, I think the early church, especially with the encouragement from Paul and others, may have just functioned just a bit differently than we do today. See, today, people show up to church. They maybe might catch up for a little bit, and then they kind of just go back to uh, their own lives. Maybe they might be involved in some other things, and maybe they come to listen to something on a Wednesday. But my point here is that we really rarely have lives that actually intertwine with one another. See, we may take prayer requests. We may even stop and ask how someone is doing. But really, when you just say, hey, how are you doing? Aren't you just really expecting the answer? Like, oh, I'm good. And, you know, just leave it from that. You're, you're expecting just a quick and easy, you know, good answer. It's not actually diving into and finding out what is going on within that person's life. And that's one thing that I think Paul and Sherman was actually trying to get to when they were, when they were talking. I think that's what they did they said very well, was that when you take the time in a week-by-week manner or just a day-by-day manner to actually get into and, and love someone and get to know their lives, it doesn't become a, hey, how are you doing? It's, you know, I'm good. It becomes, hey, how is this happening? Or what's happening exactly here? It's really the church being, being the church. So none of, none of that stuff is sinfully bad or, or evil. Uh, but when we compare how the early church functioned, I I think we can see even more clearly how superficial the American church has become. So if we take just uh, Romans 12, for example, it says, be devoted to one another, outdo one another in showing honor. Or we can look at Hebrews 13, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Or we can look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 and Romans 16 as well, where it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. So, pucker up, buttercups. So, I, I don't know about you guys, but none of your lips are getting close to mine. That's, that's not going to be happening. And if anyone's lips gets close to my wife's lips, you won't be having lips for too much longer, just to make that very clear. But you might be tempted to say that the whole holy kissing thing was just a cultural thing at the time. But at the same time, I don't, I don't think that's really right either. I think today it could maybe be done more with hugs or or bro hugs or side hugs. I do have a hug for every occasion. Um, But 
it's done in such a fashion where these hugs are these, this appropriate touching is done above reproach. So you may also be tempted to say that this sampling of verses was just for a culture back then and culture now. We just went over that. So the gospel, um, so people back then were just as sinful, just as gross, just as problematic as they are today. But yet they still lived out that gospel to each other. The gospel being that while we are yet sinners, Christ loved us. So even though we are still yet sinners among each other, we still sin against each other, Christ still loved us and therefore we can love each other. So this church, this early church, worked to live in a reality, even where if they were sinned against, that forgiveness would be quick on their lips and that they would still love their brothers and sisters. It does seem to me to go back to the American church here that we, in a sense, have traded a deep togetherness and friendships for just a false, happy-go-lucky state of mind, telling everyone that we're good and we're expecting the same answer in return. Instead, our focus really should be on encouraging one another to building one another up in love. But what about ourselves? What about you personally? Well, I do know the church as a whole, um, from the elders on down, does deeply care and love for everyone here. But I think we can all do better. So be thinking about in what ways can you love one another better? In what ways can you love how Christ has loved you? So one ministry that does directly aim to do that is our small group ministry. It is our gospel life groups. See, the gospel life groups, they're aimed to bridge that gap, to bridge that gap between Sunday and Sunday to live life with one another. So take this uh, just for an example. Um, you may remember, it's just picture, picture a ditch, and you see that person, you see a person down in that ditch, and they're struggling, they're going through the muck and the mud, or, or whatever that may be, and, and there's was, there was one way where, you, you know, you need to, you know, you can just keep walking and just ignore the person, or you can maybe throw the rope in, in the ditch and help, you know, pull that person out. And I don't think either one of those is actually right, because I don't think Scripture says that. I think Scripture says to get down in the ditch with them. I think Galatians 6.2 says for us to bear one another's burdens. So if you're standing outside of the ditch, you're not living life, life with them. Your lives aren't intertwining. You aren't there supporting them. You're not running the race alongside of them. You aren't bearing their burdens. So one mission of the life group is to do that, is to come down into the muck, to get down and dirty with the trauma, to bear each other's burdens. So you may be thinking, you know, that's great, that's great, Nick, but what does it have to do with chapter 5? Aren't we supposed to be in chapter 5 today? Well, we need to understand this dynamic, that all we do is fueled by love before we even begin to discuss church discipline. That is what chapter 5 is all about. We need to first understand what kind of community that we are striving to build and what community that we should be striving to build before we ever talk about discipline. Because if we don't, if we don't do that, discipline becomes like the father who beats his child for no reason, instead of being like the mother who weeps herself to sleep over the child who has gone astray. It truly is a church family, a week in and week out encouraging one another so that when one does sin, it's completely evident that that sin is being addressed out of deep love and concern for the wayward brother and sister. Discipline is most effective when it is done out of love. So let's get into 1 Corinthians 5. 1 through 2 says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And are you arrogant? Ought you not to rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So what here is Paul reacting against? Basically, you see very clearly in this text, a man was sleeping with his mother, which is also known as incest, by the way, and is also illegal today as well, which I'm, hopefully that's not, not a debate, at least yet in our culture. 
So Paul notes that even the pagans had an issue with this, and rightfully so. So what's so shocking in regards to this is of how wicked and depraved the culture actually was at the time. You may not know this, but the culture of the Corinthians, it was beyond worse than what we have uh, today. It wouldn't be uh, irregular for them to have pornographic images on their walls, like as decoration for their homes. Or like they would be eating dinner and they would be eating their plate and then like, oh, there's a pornographic image underneath all my food. Like that's the type of depravity that they were living in at, at that time. But what about us? Can anyone think of sins that may be common in the broad American Christianity that even the unchurched don't tolerate or struggle as he is wrong? Just a few that come to my mind, like we can be so obsessed with our money and our prosperity that we don't necessarily see that money is the root of of evil. We may be concerned with fame and how we look like to other people and, and forget that we are here to make Christ look glorious and not ourselves. We may be obsessed with having power. We may... Uh, we may see sexual abuse as not such a big deal. Um, we, may, we may have pedophilia being an issue and that we just choose to put under the rug. And as a church, I think we need to stand firm against those things. But what about verse 2? The A clause in verse 2 says that they are arrogant and they have not mourned. So this could just be a simple arrogance, that they simply are arrogant of what the culture thinks of this, that they are arrogant of this being a sin. Or it could be that they are so arrogant in their own spirituality that they have justified this sin as being okay. They take a grace-upon-grace mentality to the absolute extreme. And see, that's the danger here. In the same way that we can become harsh and unrelenting in our church discipline, we could also become so loving in our church that we become ignorant of the sins that are evident. So what's the answer here? The answer is that we should mourn over sin. We don't become haughty or proud in our rebuke, but we also don't neglect to rebuke either. We rebuke through a deep sorrow in our soul. It's a mournful rebuke with an unwavering commitment to see that brother or sister restored. The B clause in verse 2 says that this person who is in an incestuous relationship should be removed from being among them, and they should be removed from their membership and from their meetings. So for the rest of the chapter, Paul gives his reasons why this is. We see that in verses 3 through 5. It says, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and and as if present... I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man as Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So what do you guys see happening in these texts, in these verses? So first, we see Paul, and he pretty much brings the authority of the church against this particular person. He proclaims that he has already judged this person so that in the name of the power of the Lord Jesus, all of the church had gathered together and delivered this person over to Satan. So this isn't the only place in Scripture where we see this happening, actually. Christ and later Paul both affirmed um, a method in dealing with personal sins that are against each other. So if it goes beyond a 70 times 7 issue, Paul, you may remember, um, Jesus says that, or Peter asks Jesus, you know, how many times should we forgive them? And Jesus says 70 times 7. But this, is, this goes beyond that. This is something that you cannot forgive and can't just move past. It's something that cannot be covered over a multitude, where love cannot cover a multitude of sins over. Something that is continuing and ongoing. So you first would go to that person directly, and then you would bring another brother, and then you would bring the entire church. Paul and Christ both lays out that formula for us. So we see Paul gathering the authority of the entire church here in this passage, we also see in Titus 3.10 that if someone stirs up division in the church, that he should be warned once and then twice. And then after that, the church should have nothing more to do with him. We see in 1 Timothy 1.20 of Paul handing over two men to Satan so they would not blaspheme the name of Christ. We have 
2 Thessalonians that says if someone is not obeying the instruction of the letter, to not associate with them so that they may feel ashamed. So that may sound harsh to some of us, and in some ways it is harsh. But Paul gives us one massive reason why this is for the good of the person being disciplined. So what's that reason? Take a look at verse, verse 5. That he may be saved on the day of the Lord. You may think this sounds strange. Why put this person outside the church? Isn't the church exactly what that person needs? No, the church is for people who have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. So you take him out of that. You take him out of the warmth and the love of the church. You take him out of that fellowship and the care of his local church. At this point, the person knows the truth, but what he needs to see or experience is the destruction that his sin will ultimately bring. So the church pushes him out, not in a spirit of judgment, not because there is any hate involved, not because we think we are better than any of them, but so that they may be saved. That is Paul's reason. So this story is actually very reminiscent of the prodigal son. You guys may remember this story, but it basically is a story that is supposed to symbolize the Jewish people. See, they were the special people that were given in the covenant. They know the truth of the Messiah. But yet, what did they do? What did they do with that truth? They took their inheritance from their father and they went and squandered it. And in that squandering, what they found eventually that what all they used to have was gone. We found that they were stuck that the, the prodigal son was stuck in the dark, cruel world, eating only what the pigs had left over. So it was at that point then we see the prodigal son knowing what he did, and he came back running to the father. So likewise, with church discipline, when this person is there walling around in their muck and their pig poop, so to speak, that their sin has brought, hopefully they will be snapped back into their senses. They will remember the love, the encouragement, the prayer, the counseling that their local church provided to them as an extension of their love for Christ. So, Lord willing, they will see their need for a Savior. They will see their desperate need for Christ's death on the cross, and in doing so, they will want to live in obedience to him. So this is true. The most loving thing we can do is to hand people over to Satan so that one day, that on the day of judgment, their soul will be saved. So another example of this uh, would be from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones is an incredible preacher, by the way. I would highly encourage reading anything that he, he uh, comes out with. He did pass away, though, in 1981. So we told this story about this man, and this man was a part of the church. Um, he seemed to be making progress, growing as a Christian, but yet abruptly turned and just threw uh, it all away. Basically what he did is he ended up getting with another woman. He forsook his wife. He forsook his kids. He took all their money and ran off with it and blew it away. So probably a modern-day thing would be the modern-day example would be the man who basically decides to leave his wife and kids and buys the Corvette or whatever it may be and just you know, cruise around that. Um, but eventually, th- this man in, in Martin Lloyd's church eventually hit, hit rock bottom. Um, and this is, you know, this is well after uh, the church basically you know, had, to, had to push him out, out and, and go through a period of discipline. So eventually, this guy goes through um, just a lot of trauma from his sin, and he, he uh, is uh, just feeling really downtrodden and really upset and really, really hurt about everything that's been going on, and he's walking down... Westminster Bridge, and he's walking down, and he's looking over the edge, and I'm about to fall off myself, um, and he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump. I'm gonna do this. Like, I've lost everything. I lost my church. I lost my family. Everything is gone, and I'm gonna jump, and he's getting ready to jump, and right, right when he's about to do it, he hears church bells. He hears the church bells from his old church, and this man goes back to his church. He walks in there, and right when he walks in, he hears Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching, God, have mercy on the backslider. And it was that night that that man went and, be, went and was reconciled with uh, his wife. 
he then went on to eventually become an elder in that church, and that man eventually did die in glory. So see, it's through this tough love that God uses to bring people to their knees in sorrowful repentance. See, no person is too sinful or too wicked for Christ. Christ's death is more than sufficient to save anyone. This tough love is meant to show them Jesus, to have their head knowledge of the gospel move down into their heart, to turn that heart of stone into the heart of flesh. The purpose of church discipline is to save people. This is true, that church discipline should then snap a person back to Christ. And it is my prayer and my desire, not just for our life groups, but for all of Calvary, that we would be people, we'd be a people that would burn with just a white-hot love for one another, that we'd be so interconnected, we'd be so ready to care one another's burdens, we'd be living lives that are so full of the gospel that we would be missed if our lives were living among anyone else. So we do this by caring for one another. We do this by exhorting one another, loving one another, providing for one another, counseling one another. All kinds of love should be given, outdoing each other in honor. We do this all for God's glory, that he would be magnified in discipline, but also, that, also so that when the wayward person wakes up with that hangover and the despairs of the world become burdensome, that they'll remember that gospel community, the gospel living done at this church, and they would come running to the gospel. We're going to then arrive at verses 6 through 8. It says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in this section, we find Paul's second reason for church discipline. This reason is that it is also good for the church as a whole church. So Paul uses this example of leaven here, which is what they basically call, call yeast. We have some uh, great bakers here, and uh, if you ever receive a cake from Stephanie Heacock, definitely one of the best cakes you've ever had. Uh, uh, you, you gave us this pie after John was born, and it was like such a grace for that pie. Um, like, like at the end of the day, after John is in bed, and it's like being able to sit and eat that pie was like the most glorious thing, and that just, it was awesome. Um, all right, so... This, this leaven here, if you guys know how to you know bake, and I'm definitely not a baker, but from what I understand, this leaven here causes the, door to, the dough to rise. And so Paul says the same thing basically happens here. When you have a worldly person in regular communion uh, with the church, it then infects the entire congregation. So how does this happen? Well, if a one person sees another living a sexually immoral lifestyle with no rebuke or nothing whatsoever, that would probably encourage that person to then think that, well, hey, you know, living that lifestyle is just perfectly okay. So then they go out and do the same thing. And the leaven then can spread through the entire church by leading others then into sin. So by approving things that God has deemed wicked, maybe by boasting, like we see in verse 6, that they have this ability or this Christian liberty to do things just because, well, Christ died and covered my sins, that's really not the case. See, Christ did not die so we can go about sinning. We must work to purge out the leaven. Another way that a worldly motivated person can act as leaven in the whole church is to be inciting the opposite of, of what we just do on talking about, inciting the opposite of, of just the grace upon grace mentality. So if someone sins, then the brothers and sisters in response can then be harsh and domineering, bringing to light what we see in the ultra-fundamental and ultra-legalistic churches today. So the churches that demand perfection and a stern and harsh rebuke um, is very quick on their tongues. So a personal example of this is that um, Vicky and I and her, and her parents actually uh, have some, some friends who would fall into this more ultra-fundamental, ultra-legalistic uh, way of thinking. And, and they did send her, her brother to, 
to, uh, to spend some time with them uh, for a little bit. And, and basically, uh, her brother at this time was very into working out. He was very into eating rightly. And, and they identified that almost immediately as an idol in his life. And they, they may have been right that it, was, that it was an idol in their life, in his life. Um, but the way they handled it, you'll see very clearly, is not an appropriate way to handle it. So basically, you know, they took a car trip, and he got out and started, you know, doing some stretches and things like that. And, and they took, like, great offense that he was doing stretches because, you know, you're making your body into an idol or whatever it may be. And then they went to McDonald's and forced him to eat McDonald's because, you know, you're, you have to be forced to eat McDonald's in order to show that this isn't an idol in your life anymore. And see, like, maybe that doesn't sound so bad to some of you, but trust me, if I was forced to eat McDonald's, it would not be happening. Um, so, so you see, like, allowing leaven to stay in the lump can cause two extreme reactions here. So the first is that it can allow sin to spread throughout the entire church with people probably boasting that they have the freedom to live in that sin. Or the opposite side is that they can encourage others to be proud in their own personal sense of holiness and put down harsh condemnation on others. We want to avoid those two extremes. So what does this verse have to do with verse 8 and this feast that Paul commands them to keep? So what feast could Paul be talking about here? He can't be referencing uh, to the Old Testament feast because we know that we no longer have to keep that Old Testament law. So a good question to ask whenever you see a therefore like in verse 8 is to say, well, what is that therefore, therefore? So we see in verse 7 that the Christ was our Passover and that is the feast that we are commanded to keep. So what happened over that Passover uh, back in the Old Testament? So we saw the Israelites were in Egypt, and God sent the spirit of death to kill all the firstborn. So they put the blood of the lamb over their door to keep that spirit of death from coming. So what Paul is saying here is that Christ is our Passover lamb, that the feast that we, that we eat could be when we're taking communion. That's one possible option. But this feast is definitely, is definitely us living our daily unleavened lives as a festival of obedience to Christ. So let us not live this festival by being full of malice and wickedness all while praising God. Let us not do this where we celebrate uh, a festival while justifying the wickedness of those around us or worship while we pridefully shame others. But instead, let us live this festival each day by loving what God loves and hating what God hates. In 9 through 12, it says, I wrote to you in my letter not to, disso- not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or he is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such as one. For what have I to do with judging others, us judging outsiders? Is it not those inside me, inside the church, who are to judge? If God judges those outside, God judges, God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. See, Paul here is making a clarification of what he said earlier. He's making a distinction between those in the church and those in the world. In an early letter that we don't have, <clears throat> he said not to keep company with sexual immoral people. But we, but he wasn't referencing or referring to those in the world. He says that in order. To do that, you literally would need to leave uh, the planet. It's possible to not be in and around. It's impossible to not be in and around wickedness of the world. So I'm not sure if maybe some of you have heard this saying, um, but it's it's about being in the world but not of the world. So considering this, what should we be doing as a church? What should we be doing with our small groups? What should we be doing about our ministries in our church? We should be focusing our attention outward. We should be showing them that the gospel 
in both our words and our deeds to allow them to see that the gospel community looks like, for them to see Christ as the answer for the guilt and shame and suffering that sin does bring. So Jesus said the world will know us, will know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. In verse 11, Paul makes a very specific list of sins that should result in a person being cut out of the church. So we see they are either sexually immoral, greedy, covetous, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, or swindlers. So these are pretty specific. So let me try to broaden this category just a little bit for us. So each of these sins have three components. They are significant, they are outward, and they are unrepentant. So these aren't small sins. These are sins that have an outward effect on others. It is outwardly damaging to other people. They're also done over and over again without any repentance. So when these three qualifications are met, that the sins are significant, that that they are outwardly affecting others, and they are completely unrepentant, the final step of church discipline, being that person is taken out of membership, would then come into consideration from what Paul is saying. So what's a few applications we can take from this text? Well, I think a personal application for us would be that we should, is, is to question like what, what we should do when the people who sin regularly and claim to be maybe our brother and sister um, in Christ are the people who we are around frequently. What should we do when people who are around us um, are sinning and they're knowfully sinning and their sins are maybe even as significant as the sins that we mentioned here? They could be people who we are very closely related to. It could be our family or our friends or our co-workers. So this does seem to be um, a majority in America here, especially possibly in the South, where people know the gospel clearly. They know Christ has come for sinners and may even attend regular church services too. So what are we to do when those people are engaging in willful, unrepentant, and significant sin? So I think in wisdom and gentleness and love, you try to bring that sin to light. That may be well-received or it may not be well-received. But that doesn't mean we just sit idly by. We've, we first and foremost, the first thing we do is always pray. We pray for God to reveal to them. And then after that, aiming to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves, we look to have a conversation with them. And here's the thing. In, in that conversation, if that person repents or not, if that person is a believer or not, our answer to them is the same. Our answer is the cross. See, the cross, the cross shows us the price paid for our souls. To the believer and unbeliever, it shows us our sin and the price that Christ paid to take that wrath from our sins upon himself. So to the repentant and the unrepentant, the cross compels us to live a holy life, knowing that Christ took our sins upon himself. So beloved, if you are here today and you have not seen Christ as the Savior of your sins, if you have not seen your sin put against the holiness of God and the wrath that will come, I just implore you to please believe in Jesus. Believe that what he has come to do. Believe that what he has come and has already done and will do. Believe that he has died on the cross, put himself up there so that we can be covered by his blood. That the unrighteousness that we have is washed away and that we then attain his righteousness and can live in communion with him, looking forward to the day that all sin will eventually be wiped away. But beloved, maybe, maybe you do believe. Maybe you have backslidden. Maybe it's something where you know you are sinning. But whatever sin is going on in your mind right now that you may be thinking about, beloved, return to Christ. Look to him. Look to him as the salvation over your souls. Look to the cross and see what he has paid for on our behalf because he has paid a heavy price. He's paid a heavy price for us. When we looked at that and we see that, it should compel us and urge us to live in holiness and turn away from our sin. What about a broad application for the church? Well, an old Baptist theologian, theologian named John Dax said this, 
When church, when church discipline leaves a church, then Christ leaves with it. I think what he meant by that is that when a church starts becoming unconcerned with holiness, it starts becoming more concerned with what the world says rather than what Christ says. Then when a church starts to slip away and backslide away from Scripture, then Christ leaves that church. Beloved, we need to be a church that is so centered on the cross, so centered on the love of God that has been poured out on us that we cannot help but to pour that love out on others. We cannot help to grieve when we sin at work. We cannot help Sorry, uh, we cannot help to grieve uh, when we see sin being done in our midst. We cannot help uh, but to have those tough and messy conversations because in light of all that, we realize from Paul that Christ works to save those and saves in the midst of those conversations. So one last thing. Paul says in the last verse, to therefore put away from yourselves the evil person, to hand them over to Satan. But I want to make very clear to us today that in doing so, Satan is not the master of Jesus. Jesus is the master of Satan. And in doing so, he uses Satan, despite his evil desires, to actually save and sanctify his people. He is by far turning all the evil things that Satan does to good. He allows Satan to strike misery, whatever that misery may be, whatever pain, whatever turmoil it may be, knowing that it is nothing as compared to that person and what they would find in hell. So God does this so that they could one day find Christ and exalt in their times of trouble and find Christ in those times of trouble and make the power of Christ manifest in their own lives, that they would come to see their sin for what it is and come to see Christ as a Savior over that sin, that they would then make the power of Christ over sin and death and Satan made known to their souls, made known to our souls. And by doing so, we then make Christ known to others. Let's praise God for that. Therefore, it's out of love and compassion that we do practice church discipline, and it's out of our desire to see that person saved.